Welcome to the podcast of ideas. I'm Rob Lyons. The past few weeks have seen a surge, if such a thing were possible, in the number of stories and policy announcements about our supposedly bad habits. There was the WHO's announcement that processed meat is a class 1 carcinogen, that is a known cause of cancer, and that red meat was a probable cause of cancer. In the summer, Brighton and Hove Council proposed a ban on smoking on Brighton Beach, even though no one has ever made a plausible case for the dangers of outdoor passive smoking, while Edinburgh Council has just placed restrictions on smoking and vaping in many of its outdoor spaces. The Welsh Government is trying to pass legislation to ban vaping in indoor workplaces, which could even include people's homes if they were to work from home. And perhaps the biggest story has been the call to put restrictions and taxes on sugar, touted by some as the new tobacco. What should we make of these stories? With Christmas fast approaching, should we be worried about what we eat and drink? Or should we do the traditional thing and overindulge? And if the reports of our demise are greatly exaggerated, where does the impulse for them come from? And why are we apparently so obsessed with them? To discuss this, I'm joined by Dr. Michael Fitzpatrick, author, among many other books, of The Tyranny of Health, Doctors and the Regulation of Lifestyle, and my Institute of Ideas colleague, David Bowden. So, well, I'll start with the pre-Christmas stuff, as it were. Should we be watching what we eat and drink? Is there some truth to these reports? Well, there's an interesting... I mean, I quite agree there's an extraordinary upsurge in these uh, measures to curb um, all these sort of activities and scare stories about health. There's an extraordinary mismatch between uh, the if you stand back and look at the wider state of people's health, that people are clearly living longer and healthier lives than ever before. And that's one of the major, dem- well, the major demographic uh, phenomena of recent years, which is that life expectancy is, is, has dramatically increased in recent years. Life expectancy most dramatically has increased at the age after 65. And indeed, this is a source of another health panic of course which is the burden of increasingly aged people but people are living longer lives and they're living healthier lives and what's particularly interesting about that is the generation of people who are now coming into their 90s and their lives are going on uh, apparently almost indefinitely they grew up in an era when there was no particular concern about lifestyle they ate smoked drank took no exercise at all uh, in the sense of, you know, the exercise dedicated to the prolongation of life and the improvement of health, and yet they're living longer and longer. So I think it's a, the most important thing in this general is to get the whole thing in some sort of proportion, stand back and say, look, we, th- there is no need for this intense level of anxiety about health. People are living longer and healthier lives than ever before, despite the fact that they, they didn't pursue all these lifestyle guidance. So the most important thing is we need to just relax a bit about it and scale down the level of anxiety and panic that surrounds it and the, the guilt-mongering and the shame, fat-shaming and all the rest of it, the stigmatising uh, that, uh, that has such a damaging effect on public morale. There was a, a, a story about fat shaming in the, the, the press today about um, how plus size models are encouraging people to uh, to eat more. Literally, the sight of a plus size model will encourage you to eat more. David, well, it's interesting on that point about growing life expectancies because particularly when I was a little bit younger, teenager, kind of at university, the one thing that was really pushed down my throat at the big message was that my generation were going to be the first ones to die before their parents, which even in itself sort of sounded, although obviously it was supposed to be about reduced life expectancy because of poor lifestyles, it had this almost kind of a uh, hysterical 
air that literally we were all going to drop dead by about 35 in our generation and our, our poor elderly parents in their 90s were going to be left mourning us which yeah, didn't sound very likely and it seemed to go completely against <laughs> a, um, yeah. uh, a, any logical approach to you know the, the kind of topic and that's really what the danger is that when people start attaching kind of certain key messages that they sort of want to push out to generate some fear about these things, actually it ends up kind of creating more confusion and and fear and completely loses sight of the overall happy story that life expectancy will continue to rise. Well, you wrote The Tyranny of Health, Mike. Some of the things that were coming up then, so this is 2001 when that book came out, the big concerns then seem to be like AIDS, BSC or mad cow disease, uh, there's there quite a bit of fear about cot death, and one that you've written extensively about was the, this fear that MMR uh, vaccine was causing autism. And yet now, that's, almost all of those seem to have disappeared from the public consciousness, and there's a whole new bunch of things, whether it's obesity or, sh- or sugar in particular. So does that, the fact that, that the kind of, the things that we worry about have shifted so much, is that just a product of medical progress, and or is it the, the fact that actually the fear kind of is slightly detached from the specifics. I, I don't think it's anything to do with medical progress because one of the interesting things is that, in fact, there's been very little medical progress in dealing with any of the major causes of mortality in the modern world. The, the improvements are relatively marginal compared with the dramatic almost abolition of infectious diseases in the sort of post-war period. I think looking back the, to that uh, moment of the, when, when I did, wrote The Tyranny of Health, I mean, the, the, the AIDS scare was a very important watershed because it was the first time you had a direct government intervention in, personal, in intimate personal behaviour. And that was, I think, very significant. And the, the, the way in which the government played an active role in promoting a whole new sort of moral code around... Uh, the AIDS around sexual behaviour, replacing a traditional sense of what was good and virtuous with what was safe and and um, and healthy. I think that was a played a very important role. But I think also if you look back, and I think I remember I had a chapter in that book on the big four focuses of health promotion, which were smoking and drinking, diet and exercise. And if you look that at those the big those big four, they were the big four then, and they're even bigger now. And each one of those areas has become the focus of intense public health, public uh, scrutiny. And you can't turn on the television or open a newspaper without seeing something about all those areas. And what's interesting, I think, over the last 20 years is that in in the public health approach to each of those areas, you see a more, more coercive dynamic coming into play in terms of more bans and prescriptions on smoking. We know the whole areas of smoking bans that have been more and more coercive. Um, and, that's, uh, and that applies to all, all those, and as you've mentioned, some of the things about food and, uh, uh, and some of those other areas. What's also striking over that, they've the, the become more coercive, but also actually they've been less and less effective. You know, the, the proportion of adults who smoke declined from about 50% to about 25% in the, from the 60s onwards when there was a bit, bit first widespread publicity about this danger of cigarette smoking. Uh, in other words, before all these more uh, in, intensive bans and uh, prescriptions came into play. And they've actually been relatively far less successful, particularly with younger people, and hence the, the con- con- continuing preoccupation with those things. And what's interesting, I think, about the response to that is that the evidence of the failure of these, tech, these methods 
only produces a greater... It's like we've got to do more of the same and try even harder, even though what we've done in the past hasn't worked. And so you get more calls for more, more bans on advertising, more bans on, you know, this recent ban on patients admitted to mental health wards of any psychiatric institution of any sort. They're going to be banned from smoking, banning smoking in prisons. You know, they just ratchet up banning smoking in cars. I mean, obviously, the whole thing is moving inexorably towards banning people smoking in their own homes. But the, those interventions are immune from the evidence that they don't actually work. But they, what they do is they generate an atmosphere of, of anxiety, of, of guilt and blame and recrimination, which the fat shaming is, is a good illustration of, which is a very um, uh, invidious sort of development. Yeah, and worse than that, there's actually the real risk that they could cause some harms. It's not just the fact that they're kind of, you know, essentially interventions that don't work to achieve what they are, but, you know, at least somebody is trying. I mean, when you look at vaping at the moment, which actually kind of represents a real possibility of a kind of great breakthrough in public health terms, in terms of people moving off in a fairly large scale from cigarettes, which they're kind of committed to, from tobacco onto vaping, uh, which by any kind of reasonable measure will be less harmful than smoking it's actually been clamped down as hard as smoking is now on the basis that it's a gateway drug rather mm. than a gateway to kind of giving up or harm reduction but it seems to be the case um it is all of these bans are coming in against electronic cigarettes in the same way that they're coming uh, against smoking which seems to act as a massive disincentive to um, people moving on to electronic cigarettes Anyway, there's increasing demands to regulate them um, you know, in an even sort of tougher way, which for a developing new product is, uh, is quite risky. And, you know, you look at this week, there was a massive story of you know, the, a Harvard study which was linking e-cigarettes to popcorn lung. And that was the kind of big headlines that you saw everywhere, the kind of chemicals found in e-cigarette flavorings uh, resulted in this very hideous uh, type of lung cancer called popcorn lung. So named because the chemical diacetyl, uh, which they used in as a flavouring in a, uh, popcorn factories, did, did have a kind of high incidence of um, giving people this terrible lung disease. Um, the reality is, when you actually looked at this, at the study itself, actually it found that uh, it was in very low concentrations, much lower concentrations than cigarettes in fact so even if you were smoking if you were smoking cigarettes before and you're now smoking e-cigarettes you had taken in less diacetyl and in any case there's never been any proven link between smoking cigarettes and developing popcorn lung um, and it's this kind of sort of real kind of push of misinformation and kind of concern and sort of fear which starts to ratchet things up until you actually reach a bizarre regulatory framework today now where public health in some not across the board there are many people who do think that e-cigarettes are a good alternative but where they will end up banning stuff which could potentially make a much bigger public health improvement than all of the stuff they're doing presently so i was talking to a friend of mine who has some contact with nhs stop smoking services and they've got a real problem at the moment which is that people are going off and using these using e-cigs and they're getting less and less trade for their patches and gums and various other interventions. And um, so that they're, they're worried they're kind of being done out of a job. So they're trying to find a way in which they can be the ones that introduce people to e-cigs so that then they can claim that they have helped somebody to stop smoking. In the meantime, as you say, you know, there's more and more restrictions on these things. So it's uh, actually they're, they're undoing whatever benefits that this quite non-state driven intervention has uh, produced 
I think it's a very interesting moralizing, infantilizing dynamic around this. Rather reminds me of my at my Catholic primary school. You know, there used to be uh, we used to be instructed uh, on the evils of giving scandal or setting a bad example, and the older children used to be told for setting a bad example to the younger children. And that, in a way, has become the one of the major sort of preoccupations of the public discourse around this is. You know the idea of role models, and this this applies to the to the uh, which you mentioned earlier models of a certain size uh, influencing women's attitude to their to their diet and exercise. People vaping, and it's the thing about people vaping is, and and if children see adults vaping, this will encourage them to smoke. If if children says monkey see monkey do, if children see adults smoking in public places, they will seek to imitate them. If people see, um, you know, there's a movement to to alter old films isn't there and to get rid of the people smoking in them so but i think that this the you see here that how health has replaced traditional religion as a focus of moral regulation the 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 prevailing tendency of treating people as moral uh, inferiors and its children in all these things is is a very big influence on the public discourse let's let's explore that a bit further because i'm interested in where this comes from so you you mentioned earlier about that the aids panic and how that was this kind of watershed in terms of government intervention uh, is, is this coming from a political route in any ways is, that, is, is is because that would that was the conservative government in the 80s that did this but but a lot of the people who seem to be at the forefront of public health seem to be sort of old socialists old, old sort of lefties and a lot, and I know that a lot of people, sort of, who are into freedom of choice and whatever, say, "Oh, this is just like the left trying to get into power by other means." I mean, is this a party political thing or a political spectrum thing in any sense, or is this is this driven by wider changes in society? Well, I think there's no doubt it's wider than any particular political party. I mean, it's very interesting uh, looking back to the age thing that Margaret Thatcher famously was very reluctant to embark on the explicit advice being uh, recommended by the public health people around the use of condoms and uh, the apparent public endorsement of the legitimacy of activities such as oral sex, homosexuality, which uh, were were being promoted. And indeed, this is one of the reasons why all the radicals rather welcomed all this. It's a very good thing if the state is now talking openly about sexual behaviour, not appreciating that the whole context for it was in this sense of replacing traditional concepts of moral virtue with a a, a more modernised, secular, but safety-based, but in, in many respects... Uh, uh, some very similar, but it, it, uh, its aura was of being non-judgmental and tolerant and pluralistic, but it sought to regulate sexual behaviour in a most minute way, grading all sorts of sexual activity according to their their level of safety. I think uh, you know you have to see this moral, uh, what, the, the the government promotion of this moral agenda in a wider context than any particular political party, and there's been there's this sense of reluctance of politicians actually to be pushed into it and were sort of dragged into it kicking and screaming by this wider social movement and I think that what lies behind it from a government point of view is a wider sense of a loss of authority of traditional institutions including government politicians, churches all the traditional networks of of so authority in society have, have lost their influence over the last 50 years and I think government uh, and politicians themselves, governments have 
come to see health as an area in which they can establish points of contact with a, an electorate they're out of touch with in other words, all the traditional mechanisms that they used to mediate between them and the public have fallen into disrepute but health provides a way that they can make contact and also establish authority they can tell people what to do in the sphere of health when they can't tell them what to do in any other uh, area and by by ratcheting up their fears of health and disease uh, illness and disease they can regulate public behavior and i think that is a sort of compensation in a way for the loss of legitimacy and authority of established agencies of control in society yeah and you see that particularly pronounced around uh, devolved governments. I mean, it's no coincidence that it's is the Scottish government and the Welsh government who lead the way on a lot of things. Who themselves have want to kind of really emphasise the fact that they have a lot of power and authority, but have probably even got kind of more diffuse or kind of hard to pin down authority than uh, than anyone else. So that you know, particularly I mean, particularly when you look at the Scottish government, which poses the kind of great progressive kind of a, a force of the SNP who wanted to seize control back of. To, to Scotland's sovereignty, um, if only to devolve more power to the EU, effectively. But it's the main area that it can enforce uh, its influence over people's lives is through health and lifestyle regulation. Because, of course, who can be against you trying to improve public health? Who can be against you uh, um, trying to stop children from smoking or from people drinking themselves to death or to, to living unhealthy lives? It kind of gives people a kind of great moral impetus here to push forward a lot of these things i mean actually what's interesting is that there isn't also at the same time although they're not politicians were a bit reluctant in some cases to take up these things today they are very happy to lead the way on these things actually it's not been driven by a great demand from below that you should have these restrictions coming in they want to set an example to kind of uh, set a kind of standard and that's also really feeds in Socially, because that's my concern about a lot of the kind of smoking bans, and you can sort of see that around. Uh, you can see that around e-cigarettes at the moment. You can see a lot of private sort of places are kind of are banning them inside. A lot of pubs, a lot of various things, and these people are taking their lead from our authorities, who are saying that this is th- these. There are a lot of risks. There are a lot of harms associated with it. People feel emboldened to complain about these things. Complain. They perceive a risk from somebody smoking an e-cigarette in the same bus or train as them and therefore they will say well this sort of thing should be banned and of course for a quiet life why on earth would a, a train operator or whatever want to deal with that kind of controversy and so it starts to feed into this really kind of drab attitude to public space this really kind of sanitized sort of sense of the only things that should be allowed in public are healthy role model activity. Today has provided us with a, a very good example of that, a very explicit example of uh, what Mike was saying is Sally Davis has produced her annual report on health, and this this is around uh, women's health. And there's lots of things that the government actually could do, some specific things around like dealing with ovarian cancer, but that that's not what. Uh, has attracted all the attention. It's it, it, this idea that obesity is a bigger risk than terrorism. And actually, she's very explicit about saying, well, with pregnant women, we've got this fantastic point of contact. You know, we we can really influence their behaviour now when they're in this kind of malleable state of of concern and anxiety about you know, the uh, getting pregnant and about the gestation of the fetus and so on. This is a, a, a moment when we can sort of get in there and. Uh, 
manipulate their behaviour. And you know, it's, as you said, it's it's one of those moments in people's lives when actually they are open to these health messages and to uh, sort of government intervention and moralising. But also at the same time, you've got the the, author- the traditional authorities, as it were, going, "What are what are you doing?" So the smoking in cars thing, the police are going. Okay, but it's completely unenforceable, and we don't have the resources to deal with this anyway. So, so why are you doing it? The, the other thing that struck me was 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 the fact that it's now gone beyond the threat, as it were. So, we, we know this with vaping, we know this with outdoor smoking. Actually, because it's become so embedded, there doesn't even have to be a specific risk anymore. You know, uh, at least not to anybody around the person who's doing whatever activity it is, whether smoking or vaping or drinking. So is this a new level of prohibitionist kind of control freakery going on here? Well, I think there is cumulatively, uh, undoubtedly, a, a, a new level of, uh, of interference. And I think it's obviously best symbolised by the whole nudge uh, philosophy and the behavioural intervention, whatever it's called, behavioural intervention, started off in Downing Street is now a free-floating kind of organisation which yeah. seeks to promote these measures which um, have the effect of, ch- of manipulating people, that are encouraging people to make the right choices in the jargon, which are, have a highly manipulative sort of character and uh, have the, the, uh, the effect of diminishing in the autonomy of the individual to make their own choices in relation to uh, their own lives. And the, the, the neglect of that fundamental and ancient principle that it's more important to make the wrong choices than to obey instructions to the development and the, the sense of individual liberty. And I think this is one of the interesting to go back to your point, David, particularly about the devolved governments, is that there's a sort of there, there's a historic sense in advanced capitalist societies of reluctance uh, or a sort of hostility to state intervention in the realm of the individual liberty that there's a threat there's a tension between the individual freedom and the state and this goes back to you know 19th century Germany the imposition of quarantine there's a famous book about the quarantine measures to control cholera in Hamburg you know where the burghers were very resistant to the Prussian state and its its attempt to enforce restrictions on the movement of trade because in the cause of preventing disease even though it was may have prevented disease it was still um, going to interfere with their trade and there was a sense of the need to protect the autonomy of the individual capitalist trader against the incursions of the state which had a very an enduring sense in capitalist society that the uh, freedom of the individual was something very precious and had to be tightly guarded by the individual citizen against the incursions of the state and the state would only be allowed to restrict individually on very strictly controlled circumstances and that's a a very deeply imbued tradition in uh, modern societies which interestingly is in its most attenuated form in these devolved governments whereas there is a sort of residual sense of that you feel in the British state when you by the time you get out to the Scottish Assembly or the Welsh Assembly, any sense of that tradition has, has gone. And actually it's interesting really that we have a state where in the past tradition was generally regarded as reactionary and conservative. In this respect actually tradition has a more progressive character because the, the new measures have a much more reactionary, restrictive, coercive kind of dynamic to them. Yeah, And also at the same time what's interesting about nudge is is particularly this very degraded kind of view we have of the sort of subject and the the sort of flip side to why you know the arguments why we need all of these nudge interventions that we are bombarded by them in the in the private sphere in in advertising by by all of the evil industries who are interested in selling us sin and vice 
and nudging us sort of non-stop. And so the government needs to step in to be the kind of good nudger, to nudge us in the right direction. But I remember being at a very good talk by somebody in the alcohol, in, in, in the beer industry, who was making the point about low alcohol beer. And he was saying that, you know, they've been essentially trying to nudge their customers onto low alcohol beer for for years because it's far more advantageous to a, a brewery company if you if people are drinking beer to try and get a certain level of drunkenness. If you have low alcohol beer, they have to buy more beer to get to that level of drunkenness. He was saying that despite all the things they'd variously tried, it doesn't quite work because they want to sell people premium, strong-tasting beer that get, does actually get them drunk they, um, at some point. Maybe not to an extreme level, but they actually do want to get drunk in it. And it hasn't quite worked in that way because consumers are still actually kind of fairly strong and know what they want in certain regards. But public health can always kind of come in and step in and say well we are protecting you from various you have no control in the face of this kind of market when in reality anyone who's ever worked in advertising or nudging people in just terms of trying to sell them something know that individuals and customers are very discerning and quite difficult to prejudge and rarely do what you want them to do Um, doctors can confirm that mm -hmm. too (laughs) and so is there anything to be done about this then i mean I suppose a small sliver of good news is it looks like that Brighton and Hove Council beach ban on smoking is going to be dropped as a proposal, for the time being at least, although that's not been confirmed. And that's on the back of lots of smokers like organising to kind of respond to the Brighton consultation. You, know, I mean, there must have been shock that anybody bothered to actually reply to a consultation. So um, it must have had some impact. But is there anything wider we can do other than carrying on doing you know engaging in our bad habits well no i think i think we can resist these coercive bans i think that as you say that the pub the ban the brighton one the trafalgar square there was a trafalgar square launch of a similar plan to ban smoking in public spaces in london with the boris and the the mayor of london and the uh lord darcy the public health czar you know both conspired together to to launch this whole thing to ban have smoking banned in public places in london there is a certain positive side to that because it begins to draw out into the into the public realm. The first of all, the, the, because they claim the scientific evidence for this, which is a, a, a nonsense, and it draws attention to the lack of scientific evidence for the passive smoking case across the board, and therefore undermines the legitimacy of that. But it also draws attention to this idea that it's a legitimate role of the government to be uh i mean because of the way in which it's justified actually there is a slippage away it's very difficult to argue that people smoking in public parks or on the brighton beach is causing increased exposure of children to to smoke but the argument is shifts towards this idea of setting a bad example to children who be exposed to it in public so it's the example rather than the smoke that's toxic and in a way that also you know makes more explicit the moralizing coercive nature of state intervention in this area and i think it's it uh, as you suggest rob is already provoking a bit of a reaction unfortunately the prevailing dynamic is on the popular is to demand more of the same unfortunately people the you know well, that was one of the interesting things about the smoking bans you know that people who smoked so you know generally all the studies showed rather approved of that because it was like it beat me harder was the general dynamic and i think that reflects the the general sense of the cult of individual vulnerability and diminished subjectivity that underlies the popular support for all these sort of mechanisms but i think they can be challenged one by one as they as they come up 
Yeah, I mean, that's you really look at the rise of kind of public consultations and the way in which these things are increasingly kind of put out for discussion. The fact is these are, these are brought in because you know, political figures and people in authority think that they are the doing the right thing, that they're the good guys, and they're doing essentially something that people on the whole want. You know, they're, they're kind of cutting through the... Uh, the uh, the raft of special interests and people uh, who are who are trying to make their money off selling these sort of sins yeah. to you and that they are doing the right thing and actually I think the more and more you can kick against that and to actually say this is not um, straightforwardly a good thing this is not a kind of just neutral you you stepping into um, to do something kind of good and to, to to try and not be so frightened I think all the time by a lot of these uh, stats that are kind of thrown around and to, to you know generally sort of support and celebrate people who make any arguments for liberalism I think in, in, in contemporary life and the kind of freedom to sometimes do things that we may not may not like uh, in public spaces and I think also that's the thing actually being a bit willing within ourselves to sort of sometimes say actually I'm not going to this person may be doing this thing that I don't like on public transport or this thing that I don't approve of but unless it's really dramatically harming someone then it's not really my business so maybe I should kind of bust out of it and be a little bit harder on you yourself and actually say well actually if I if I want to drink less or to eat healthier or to um, smoke less then the onus has to be ultimately on me to do these things it's you know people can can help me and assist it but that's I have to take that decision for myself and to try and follow that through it's not the role of an external body to come in and assist you with that one or to blame someone else for um, for the lifestyle that you're living that you don't like very much. I think there are some interesting arguments that are thrown up by these uh, uh, issues as they come up. I mean, if you take, for example, the Welsh Assembly's decision on uh, introducing the uh, presumed consent in relation to organ donation, which came through the other week, which is an example of a nudge to tackle a particular problem of the shortage of uh, as has been widely publicised, a shortage of donated organs for people who are waiting for and dying, waiting for hearts, lungs, kidneys, etc. And it's a very interesting argument, I think, because and I'm, I, I've somewhat shifted my personal position. I, as somebody who carried an organ donor card for years, uh, out of that experience of working as a doctor and seeing people uh, who uh, needed these organs and, and the consequences of not having them and seeing it as a, as a, if you look at it from an entirely narrow, medical, practical, pragmatic sort of point of view, any way that you can get a, a donor organ into somebody who's dying for the want of it seems like a good idea. However, if you look at it on the other hand, this idea of the state taking ownership over effectively everybody's body and presuming their consent, to, so they, and they, as, a, as a noxious word, harvest their organs uh, should they be the victim of a terrible car crash or something of that nature, then you're, you're, you're entering a wider realm of state incursion on individual autonomy. And in this wider social political context that we've discussed, my gut medical sympathy for presumed consent shifts uh, uh, in the other direction towards uh, a real hostility to this sort of measure. And it's interesting, of course, the controversy rages, will it actually practically increase? The, and there's various examples of different countries, people are familiar with these arguments, Spain, the USA, various places in Europe, all have slightly different policies and you can argue the evidence in, our, in any direction. But what people are reluctant to do is to argue the case in relation to the defence of the moral autonomy of the individual, which 
in this wider context seems to me to, to be tremendously important. And I think you've got a the really hard argument that comes to, the, to this is that actually in some of these instances, you the evidence may well say that if you had a presumed consent, you would get more organs and save more people's lives. But that may be too high a price for the wide, wider surrendering of the autonomy of the individual, which is a very precious thing in a democratic society that individuals have sovereignty over their own bodies, even after death. And I think um, when that principle is so much in, under threat, then I think um, you know my sentiment would shift in, in favour of arguing against the presumed consent. But it's a, you know, I'm not saying there isn't a cost for these, and and it's the same is true for some of these other things. You know, people may well, uh, as a result of saying, you know, if you, if everybody is locked up in a concentration camp, it would reduce the level of smoking. You know, but you've, is that too high a cost to be paid? That's the. We have to look at each one of these cases, examples, case by case. And that's, I think, a very good point to finish on. Thank you very much, Mike Fitzpatrick and David Bowden. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Podcast of Ideas. If you'd like to find out more about our podcasts and subscribe to them, go to instituteofideas.com forward slash podcast. Podcast.